This is the New Canaan Society podcast for the Franklin, Tennessee chapter. We are a group of men who gather together to encourage each other in friendship and in faith, and to support each other to be better husbands, fathers, and better men in the marketplace and in our communities. Friendship at NCS happens through our regular meetings in local chapters all across the country. The Franklin, Tennessee chapter meets the first and third Thursday each month at Puckett's Grocery and Restaurant in downtown Franklin from 7 to 8 a.m. This podcast is sponsored by Harrington Interactive Media. Working on a book? Let us help you get it to print. We can edit your book, design the cover, and help you list it on Amazon's print-on-demand services. See examples of our work and connect with us at harringtoninteractive.com. In this episode, Andy Marshall shares a talk called How God Loved Me When I Thought No One Else Could. It was recorded on January 17th, 2019. Welcome to Breakfast with the Brothers. We're the new Canaan Society. Um, if it's your first time, or even if you're not on our list, we send out an email twice a month just saying, here's what we're doing. And if you're not on the list and want to be, just write your name and your email address. It'll go around, and we'll put you on the list. No ads, but twice a month you get a note from me. And we're going to open with just a word of prayer this morning. Our Lord, we just thank you for the chance of getting together, for being friends, for sharing our lives with each other, and for this food that has been prepared for us. Give us a great morning. Help us to worship you. Help us to enjoy each other. In Jesus' name, amen. I just ch- One of the things I've been thinking about the last couple days is to challenge you to a ministry of listening. Um, most of us have things we want to say to somebody. And if there's nobody to hear us, what do we do? So as you said, I mean, it's been going on all morning, but there's a real ministry of listening. So I just challenged you to that. For about six or eight years, we have been guests here of Andy Marshall, and we really appreciate it. But do you know who Andy Marshall is? Today, we're going to find out. And Tommy, a friend of Andy's who lives here and in Israel, is going to introduce Andy to us. Tommy? This is an awesome privilege to introduce my best friend. I doubt there's anybody here. I would be surprised if anybody here has known Andy as long as I have. Uh, We met uh, in junior high school, eighth grade. And uh, so uh, Andy and I were inseparable and uh, in school and and, uh, playing uh, ball. Uh, we still consider ourselves uh, maybe not offensive linemen, but still offensive sometimes. Uh, but it's uh, it's been a it's been a good road, um, and Andy has been part of my life, and it's rare. Uh, you know, I don't I have a lot of friends uh, from school. I see uh, Joe here, and and uh, but um, the to have a friend that's really been with you. In every stretch of your life, you know, and, and I have not been in Franklin all the time, but wherever I was at, he was there. And, um, and no matter where I was at in the world, Andy was, was there supporting me and, and, uh, and blessing me and, and encouraging me. And, and really, some, some strange uh, routes that I took, uh, he was always there to encourage me. And that's a friend, a friend that 
that, um, you know, shot me straight a lot of times and still shoots me straight, gives me good advice. And, uh, and, and a brother that would lay his life down for me. Um, I could tell you a lot of stories. Uh, Andy, I made a pr- uh, promise to Andy that I wouldn't share those stories um, <laughs> because I want you to, to understand Andy as I do, even after all the things that we've been through as a really righteous man and a, uh, a brother, a true brother that uh, it's going to be hard for me to, to say all this without tearing up, but um, a brother that stood with me uh, through everything, uh, through thick and thin, and uh, what a blessing to have friends like that, to have a friend like that. And I think it's uh, important for us to be that kind of friend, to be that kind of person. And um, Andy, you are a blessing uh, to me, a strength to me. I found out Andy was going to be speaking here. I'm actually not in Franklin anymore, even though Franklin is my hometown. I'm in southeast Missouri. Actually, I'm in uh, Israel most of the time. Uh, but uh, working there, just had Andy there um, a couple of months ago, uh, back in September, and uh, what a what a blast it was just to have Andy uh, in the land, uh, working with us and, and seeing uh, seeing th- the world through my eyes, and uh, what a what encouragement! You're very fortunate to have this kind of brother uh, in this place and in this city. And in this community, um, I'm, I'm envious of you guys uh, to have him here. I want him. I want him with me all the time because he's such an encouragement. But Andy, come here and share with us uh, your testimony. I, I could hear it a thousand times, and still inspires me. Uh, what a blessing! What a what a what a, a story of being able to overcome and to do uh, you know the impossible. Uh, an, an amazing man. Amazing friend, Andy Marshall. Wow, I told him to take 30 minutes and I'd take the last five. (laughs) (laughs) Instead, he took the five and left me with the 30. (laughs) So, right, so... um, Starting out, first thing you say is, you know, I'm not a professional speaker. I'm a professional, but not a speaker. And uh, and so when you're challenged with something like this, um, you often think, well, I'm not worthy. You know, what what do I have to say? You know, we've sit in the presence and listened to some great speakers and and been impacted as men um, in a lot of different ways. So. Um, I open it up with prayer. Father God, I just thank you, Lord, uh, once again to be um, here with these these men, and and I'm always grateful and, and thankful to think of of men that want to build relationships with each other so that they can build a stronger relationship with you, Father God. That's the reason we started this. And so, Lord, as I feel unworthy, Father God, it it does allow me to release myself unto you for you to speak through me and to them. So, Father God, I pray your spirit be with us, that we have a time of, uh, of sharing and loving and, uh, and furthering the kingdom, having that opportunity today. So it's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. 
So I woke up this morning, Jan says, it's pouring. I said, great. <laughs> that may lighten the crowd and, uh, and it'll be less pressure. And, uh, and you know, often say, you know, there's not, you know, a Bible study is really cool when, uh, when the bar's full. <laughs> uh, I mean, how much better can it get than that? So I'll start out with something I shared with my associates. We just had our, our company-wide summit. We, we call it affectionately the Puckett Summit. And, uh, and we get all our key people together, and, and we talk about what happened this last year and what's, what we're looking forward to in 2019. And, and uh, we get real about incentives and opportunities. And uh, we have this cool incentive in our company that, you know, if they hit their numbers and they, they get their incentives, we, Jan and I take them on a trip to Cabo. So they're highly motivated, you know. We, uh, we enjoy that aspect, and we tell them every year, you know, we, we hope that you make us have to spend two months in Cabo as you rotate through. That's our goal. So I, I shared with them the story, um, the rock that sometimes see me fiddling around. You know, some people have spinners, supposed to calm them. Well, this, this rock is my, my calming rock. Um, years ago, when we were in Leaper's Fork, we had this cool catering uh, job where we um, we took the smoker down into this valley, and the smoker was bouncing all behind my truck and all this sort of stuff, and I was worried about it bouncing off the trailer the whole way down there. And we got down, and we set up in this creek, and we set the tables and chairs in the middle of the creek and, uh, and had this cool little catering party down there. Well, while we were down there, I, I found this rock, and I thought, man, that's like the perfect rock. It's, it's smooth. It's round. It feels good. And so um, that day when we were coming down the hill and my smoker was bouncing, I had this bright idea because I was running behind that I'd light the smoker when I left the house. And when I got there, it'd be ready for me to start cooking. So some of you guys probably know what happens when you add oxygen to fire and all this bouncing and jostling around. Well, by the time I got there, and the smoker still is sitting in front of the Leaper's Fork store. I left it there when we sold the, the restaurant. Sweet smoking Sadie, I affectionately called it. So Sadie had never failed me until this day when I opened up that smoker and, and the, the racks, rotisserie racks that are in there had bounced off and had wedged in there. And the fire was roaring. And the only way to get to the fire was through the back of the firebox. So I opened up the firebox and I crawled in there. And I jumped back and I'd crawl in and I'd jump back and finally, <laughs> I reached in my pocket and pulled out this stone I just found. I said, Lord God, um, I'm fixing to ruin everybody's party if I don't get in there. And so, yeah, so it, it happened. But I've had this rock with me for a long time. But this rock is a reminder that nothing is too big. And recently I was in Israel, and one of the spots Tommy took me to was this, um, this settlement up on top of this hill. And the guys that were settling it there said, this is, this is where you would have seen David hiding into the caves. This is where he ran 
along these these mountain sides here, down into these caves, and they and he he would hide for those that were trying to kill him. And I thought, wow! I mean, I could see it, I could feel it, and that's the beauty about going to Israel is you actually, you, the the Bible comes alive. For me, reading the Bible, it was stories, and chronologically, I had trouble kind of making them all make sense to me at times. But when you put your feet on the ground in Israel and you put your hands in the dirt and you start hearing the Jewish people talk about the Bible and the history there, it all comes alive. So it reminded me of this stone and I went back, but I, I, I shared it with my associates that this stone represents to me a boy who would become king, that nothing was too big, that with a rock and a sling, he, he took God with him into battle, and uh, he slayed the giant. So um, I often get this rock out, and I rub the heck out of it. So I don't even know if it's the same size anymore. Uh, but uh, speaking in public causes you to, to reach for something to remind you that somebody's bigger than you are and that, that God is bigger than I am. So um, some of you have heard a little bit of my testimony or a lot of my testimony. I remember breaking down and crying here one day a few years ago, uh, sharing my story. And it was pretty fresh after my, my sister's passing, so there was a lot of freshness to it. But but uh, I, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. My parents divorced when I was two years old. And uh, so I didn't really have a relationship with my dad. It was such, you know, I spent one week a, a year with him, really. It's all the time I spent with him growing up. <clears throat> and um, I had a brother who was eight years older than I am, and a sister that was four years older. And so, single mom, she left Memphis, and she packed up, and she headed to uh, Cincinnati, um, trying to make her way. We were in Cincinnati about four years, and then we went to Louisville, and she remarried. Well, this gentleman that she remarried, uh, on the surface to her, was a great guy. Um, to us as children, was, was not a great experience. Um, I told the story about, you know, my brother left. He left the home when he was 15, went to live with my dad. One summer when we were, our week stayed there, he refused to come home. And so, you know, I didn't understand that at age eight, but my stepfather used to call him Chief Washy Washy. And I thought that was funny at eight years old. I thought Chief Washy Washy was funny. Well, it was funny to me because I didn't have to go do the laundry at 10 o'clock at night when he made him go do the laundry. Um, living in an apartment complex and he went out in the middle of the night, no job for a for a 15-year-old to be doing at 10 o'clock at night when he should be going to bed and getting ready for school. Well, he was hard on my brother until my brother decided he'd had enough and he left. Well, then it was my sister's turn. He started picking on my sister. My sister became a ran runaway at age 13, um, joined the hippie movement. Somehow from, uh, from Louisville, she ended up in California. And then we heard from her again. She was in Boston. And, um, and then my dad got involved trying to um, rescue her uh, from the drug scene. And um, he sent money to, for her to get, get on a bus and come home. And we heard from her again in California. So um, eventually she did make her way home and, um, and straightened out her life. Unfortunately, that, that trail that she followed uh, ended up killing her. She had hepatitis. And uh, we got um, 
one day away from a liver transplant. I'll never forget it. It was um, my daughter was getting married on on the Saturday before Easter. We were at the hospital with my sister up till Friday uh, afternoon in Birmingham. I drove home to do the. Um, the wedding uh, rehearsal, and uh, we had a beautiful wedding. And then the next morning, we got up, Easter morning, um, my wife and I, and we started heading back to Birmingham. At 6 o'clock in the morning, we got a, got a call that, uh, that she passed away, and she was supposed to have her surgery at 10 o'clock that morning. And so it was a rough go, right? Really disappointing. But I think about what all led up to that was this this lifestyle that my mother chose and my stepfather chose was alcoholism. And, um, and so when I was going through the midst of all that, seeing all this happen to my, my, you know, my brother leaving, my sister leaving, um, you know, my mother um, kind of resided to whatever my stepfather uh, demanded uh, was kind of the direction we went. So. There for a long time, I was kind of on my own. From age 10 to about 13, I wandered the streets um, because didn't know when my parents would be home. Um, we had moved back to Memphis, and uh, and I kind of you know connected with my roots there. My father at that time just lived about six blocks away, but I still rarely got to see him. We just didn't have a relationship. It just was one of those things. So. Um, I can remember at age 12 when I was at a real desperation point, I called him, um, spending a little time at Christmas with him, and, uh, and I was so full of anxieties. I wanted to ask him if I could come live with him, that if, 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 if I could just live with you, things would be better. And so at 12 years old, with all these anxieties, um, I remember... Uh, us sitting in the car and me not wanting to get out of the car and him saying, son, you, you know, you got you to gotta go home. And I said, I, I can't. I can't go back into that house. And he said, reached in his pocket, and the first $100 bill I'd ever seen in my life. And, and he put that in my hand. He said, here, maybe this will help. And I got out of the car thinking, that's not what I needed. So I started feeling like there was no one that loved me, right? My brother had, uh, had abandoned me. My sister had abandoned me. You know, um, my stepfather, my mother, I felt like had abandoned me. Particularly my mother, I felt like, you know, she could have done something and didn't. And then I felt like my dad was capable of doing something, but he didn't know how to do it. And he thought a $100 bill would would make the difference. And so I started seeking um, someone that would love me, right? What would that be? Well, in Memphis, it becomes, you know, a bunch of hoodlums that'll take you in and make things right with you and love on you and, and try, to, try to steer you towards doing things that aren't healthy and good, but they loved you. Right, they cared for you, and uh, and so in the midst of that, I felt like, you know, I felt protected. I felt like these guys liked me, but I felt like there was something wrong with all this that was going on, and um, I never did get into drugs. I, I just kind of refused it 
from the standpoint of, hey, if that's what you guys want to do, that's not me. Mainly because I had seen my mother and stepfather um, intoxicated every single day. And so I just didn't want that lifestyle. So um, a funny thing happened with my stepfather. He, he was a con artist, right? I didn't know that. It, it took me years later to realize it because we moved so often. And I didn't know why we were moving, but many times we packed up in the middle of the night and we had to move uh, based off of, you know, how oh, I got this great new job and we got to move tonight, midnight. We got we to pack everything up. We got to get out of here. Well, he was always running from, from paying something or, or not living up to some obligation. And he'd get jobs at apartment buildings being the maintenance guy. Well, after a month or two of not doing anything, they'd fire him and tell him he'd have to get out and he'd stay in the apartment until, you know, until they threatened to send the police to, to remove us. And, uh, and it was always this great adventure, you know, in his eyes, there's some great adventure we're going on. And, you know, I've got this great new job and, and we'd pack up in the middle of the night and we'd, we'd go. And so that went on for years. Um, I think by the time I got to Franklin, finally, I had been to like 11 different schools. And so um, average student at best, right? Because it was constant moving and changing environments. And um, never, you know, never thought that I was very smart because of it. But in this con art scheme he had going on, he started these um, a church building kind of deal. And he, um, it was a black church. And it was during the summer, and so I, you know, he'd take me along. I thought, you know, it was kind of cool. I'd get to carry everything. I'd get to stack all the blocks. I'd get to do all this story stuff. And I thought, this is really cool. Uh, but during, uh, during certain times of the day, the, um, the black ladies of the church that were there ministering to kids that were out of school for the summer um, would pull me into their groups, you know, and, and I would I'd hear just little bits and pieces of the, the Bible, you know, and, and it could be something as simple as, Jesus loves you, that our Messiah is going to come back, and all these sort of things just got little bits and pieces that I'd never gotten before. And so, you know, I always wondered, hey, how come we never finished that church? Well, that's when I started getting old enough to realize that he'd get just enough money from somebody and he would flee the scene and never go back. So at age 13, um, I started questioning and under, trying to, I got a little stronger, a little bolder, and I started challenging my stepfather, and it started getting really physical. And, um, and I remember one day, after, uh, after about uh, a storm, not, not like this, I mean, it was a Memphis storm, right off the Delta, and uh, thunder and everything, and I was with uh, with about four of the, the guys that I ran with, and we were laying under a parked car, and we were telling stories as that storm rolled in. <clears throat> and I mentioned, I said, hey, I remember somebody telling me that Jesus was going to come in a storm like this. And one of the other boys that went to church a lot, he said, yeah. He said, yeah, my mother says that he will, he will ride a cloud back to us, and the clouds will part. And he'll come and he'll he'll save us. And by that time, 
the clouds opened up, this ray of sunshine just shined right down on us on that car, and I received that moment, accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Under that parked car, with no true leadership, right? Had never been really led to it, but I, I was screaming out for something to save me, someone. And I'd put a lot of trust in people. I'd put it in my brother, I'd put it in my sister, I'd put it in my mother, stepfather, my dad. I'd put my trust in so many people that had let me down, in my eyes had let me down, that I was just at a point where I was saying, who won't disappoint me? Well, so at age 13, I, I received uh, Jesus uh, at that moment. Didn't know what to do with it. Um, knew there was a church, a Baptist church called Southland Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. It was about 10, 12 blocks away from our house. So I decided to, to walk there. Uh, it, was a, it was a Sunday morning. Um, got there, sat and listened to the, the preacher. Ain't the whole time, you know, the Holy Spirit was moving on me to talk to somebody. And, uh, and I, I just thought, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't know what to do with all this. So I listened that day, and then on my way home, it was raining, more like this kind of rain, just a messy rain. And I was walking home, and that preacher pulled up next to me and said, Hey, I, I think I saw you at church this morning. I said, Yes, sir. He said, well, let me give you a ride. And I said, great. And I got in the car with him, and he, he uh, on the way home, he asked me some questions, and he knew that I was, I was seeking and I was searching. He said, come back tonight, and, and I want to baptize you. And so I did that, got baptized. And so um, in that newness of Christianity, this freedom that he taught me about, you're a new person, you're, you're new in Christ, um, there was something different about me, and so I, because there was something different, I was going to act different. I was going to be different. And so this boldness started whelping up in me, misguided boldness, uh, I might say, um, had, had whelmed up in me, and I was going to stand up against my stepfather. And, um, and I'll never forget it. We had gotten, gotten kind of physical um, the night before, and I had these great friends um, the young brothers, Troy and Shane Young, uh, they were twins and looked nothing alike. But they were great athletes. Um, they uh, boxed golden gloves. They got their dad got me into to boxing and then into football and all these other things um, that they were into. And we we piled around together. They were the good set of friends I had, not the bad set. And so um, uh, that that was my house of refuge. When things got tough at our house. Miss Young says, oh, just come over here, have dinner. And then, oh, hey, it's getting late. Why don't you stay the night? You know, she never did say, don't go back. You know, this is no time for you to go back. She just made it comfortable for me to, to stay over. So I stayed over. It was at school night. Uh, they went to private school. I went to a public school. I got up that morning. I thought, well, I got to go get a change of clothes. And I walked in the house, boldness, frustrated, thinking that my mom and dad were surely gone to work. And I uh, walked in and I said, Alan Brown, if you're in this house, you can kiss my. <laughs> and he walked out of the kitchen <laughs> in his underwear, of course. 
Um, thankfully, he had underwear on. I think I shared last time we was here, he, he walked around the house most of the time stark naked, which totally grossed out a, a young man. But So I spent a whole lot of time just locked up in my bedroom because I just didn't want to be around him. But anyway, um, he walked out. Troy had walked home with me. They were going to drop me off at school. And uh, Troy and I walked in there. I said that. Alan came out. He was he was a big man. He was six five, Navy guy, weighed about I don't know. Now that I'm closer to 300, now I would put him probably closer to 350, 360. Because in my eyes, as a little young man, he was a big man. Probably not as big as as I remember. Just like the lockers at middle school, they always seem so big till you go back and visit. <laughs> So he walked out, he got physical, started throwing fists at me, and, and, uh, and I was doing my best as a 13-year-old wailing back, and Troy jumped at, on his back and tried to choke him off of me, and, and um, that was, um, was the day that changed my life. So went on to school, stayed away as long as I could after school, not wanting to go home. Finally walked in, and, and Alan and my mother were sitting at the, the dinner table waiting on me. And uh, I sat down and hoping that it would be like nothing ever happened. But I knew, something, I knew something was different. I knew it all day long. And Alan looked at my mother, and she, he said, either he goes or I go. And I'll never forget my mother looking across the table and says, do you have somewhere to go? And it was weird, right? It was weird hearing that from your mother. But at the same time, the right out of my bold little mouth is, yes, I do. I do have somewhere to go. And so she said, well, call your father and uh, see if he'll take you in. And I called him, and it caught him by surprise. And, and where, in a lot of ways, to this day, I think he wanted to say yes. He started thinking about all the reasons why it wouldn't work. He started thinking about, well, you know, we took in your brother, we took in your sister, what didn't go well for any of us. Um, later it did, but at the time it didn't. And, uh, and they had two daughters from, from uh, my stepmother with them. He said, we just, we can't afford it. We just, we just can't can't make that work. And I said, oh, great, thank you, you know, you know that, that sounds great, you know, and I'm doing all this because my stepfather and my, step, and my mother are standing over my shoulder. I said, great, and I hung up the phone. They said, is he going to take you? And I said, I said yeah, yeah, but he, he doesn't want to pick me up here. He, he didn't want the confrontation. So I'm, he asked me to pack my bags and go to Troy and Shane's house, and he picked me up there. So I packed my bags up, and by this time, you know, he had lived in Memphis, but he got transferred to Nashville to open up the giant food store. So he was in Franklin now, or Stonehenge, which is Brentwood. Uh, now, Franklin, then. So um, he was going to, you know, pick me up at Troy and Shane. So I, I put my little suitcase together and, and I walked up the street to Troy and Shane's house and, uh, and they welcomed me. You know, it was nothing really different. They, didn't, they couldn't tell any different than any other time when that had happened. So they took me in and, um, and I didn't tell them any of the details or anything. 
Well, a couple of days later, my dad called the house to check on me. And my mother said, well, I thought he was with you. And he said, no, I had explained. I couldn't take him in. And, uh, and she said, well, I, I know where he's at. He'll be up at Troy and Shane's. And so my dad drove down, and he picked me up and took me home. Changed my life, right? So, um, but that change of environment for me was, was what set me on a, on a path. First was having somebody that would stop along the side of the road and say, hey, do you need, you need a ride? Did I see you at church? And, uh, and then lead me to a baptism. And then um, the moment the, of, of being told that uh, this is not your home, you need to find somewhere else. But then my dad coming and picking me up out of responsibility. It was, it was a, the responsible thing to do. I knew it wasn't, at that point, wasn't out of love. It was more out of, well, somebody's got to do this. And that's the way I looked at it as a 13-year-old. But it gave me a chance to reset my life and say, man, I'm going to be the perfect child. I'm going to do everything right. I'm going to make up my bed. I'm going to clean up my room. I'm going to do my own laundry. I'll do all these things. And my stepmother this day says, I was the easiest child she ever had <laughs> because I did all those things because I didn't want anything to go wrong. Well, that new boldness, I met Tommy, uh, first first friend I made in Franklin. And, and quite frankly, I was pretty good at making friends by this time because I'd been to so many different schools and some of them for two or three months before I changed schools that I learned how to make friends. So Tommy and I met um, at the bus stop, sitting up on a wall. His, his parents were house parents at, at the uh, Baptist Children's Home. And, and so Tommy and I became friends. Um, the, um, the activity of my mind of trying to learn more about Christ and, and all these sort of things kind of launched into um, being who I am today. So all that being said, with time being short, you know, I, I realized that um, what I went through as a young man only was an opportunity for me to find Christ. Now, there are a whole lot easier ways to do it, right? But, you know, my wife was raised in church. She was raised in a family that went to church every day. But she also said, you know, I was baptized really young and not sure that I was fully committed. You know, I knew when I was baptized, I was fully committed. I got nowhere else to go. This was it. This was my chance. So there's a lot of ways to get there. You know, all of us have different stories. Um, but the one thing that kind of binds us all together is that there's a God that loved us so much that he would give his only son that we may find forgiveness and newness in life. And I grasped onto that, that I was no different than anybody else than my wife who went to church every day or from me who found it on the streets of Memphis. I was no different in the eyes of God, that God loved me just the same. Unlike all the experience I'd had in people disappointing me, God was faithful. He was merciful. He was gracious. And I grasped onto that, and I've been riding those wings ever since.
that's not perfect. You know, being an entrepreneur can be in many ways contrary to where God wants me to be from the standpoint of when you're an entrepreneur, you're a problem solver, right? I'm a problem solver. There's a problem, I fix it, I figure it, I make it happen. Well, sometimes God just wants me to, to rest in him. So I'm going to close with, with this because as an entrepreneur, sometimes I get so far out in front of me, I forget exactly where I'm supposed to be and what I should have done from the beginning, which usually comes to putting God first, you know, going to God, putting him out in front of me, praying before I go. And, um, and so often I forget that. So this came to me yesterday in the midst of a lot of business stuff that's going on. My precious wife sent this to me. She said, thought of you this morning when I read this. Come to me, rest in my loving presence. You know that this day will bring difficulties, and you are trying to think your way through those trials. As you anticipate what is ahead of you, you forgot that I am with you now and always. Rehearsing your troubles results in spirits in them many times, whereas you're meant to go through them only when they actually occur. Do not multiply your suffering in this way. Instead, come to me and relax in my peace. I will strengthen you. I will prepare you for this day, transforming you, your fear into confident trust. And man, I do that a lot of times. I rehearse my challenges, things that are coming. I think through them in my head, all these different scenarios. And that's part of the sickness of being an entrepreneur is, is you're going to try to figure out how to fix it, right? In your mind, you're going to try to figure it out. You're going to rehearse it. But when I rehearse it over and over and over, it pulls me deeper and deeper and deeper into where I don't need to be, which is trust. I need to trust. So it ends with, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, le and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, Matthew 11, 28, 30. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Joshua 1, 5, 9. So... As that little boy laying under that truck in Memphis or that car in Memphis and that storm rolling through, I'm often reminded to go back to that moment and remember just crying out, releasing myself from all my troubles and cares and crying out and saying, Jesus, save me. I want to live in that moment, and I don't always do it. But simple reminders from a good wife and from friends and from guys like you, keep me in that humble state of remembering 
that we're meant to be something special, each and every one of us. Doesn't matter what our background is, we're all meant to be something special. But sometimes we have to surrender to it to let it happen. So God bless you. Thank you for coming. This always is a joy to see all of y'all here. It's uh, it's one of the, the greatest things that I get to participate in is seeing you guys, seeing the relationships that you're building, seeing the way that you can pull on each other's strengths and get through your tough times and celebrate your glorious times together. So love you. God bless you. You've been listening to the New Canaan Society podcast for the Franklin, Tennessee chapter. Remember to check out Harrington Interactive Media and get your book to print. They edit, package, and help you put your book on Amazon if you're an author, organization, or a publisher. 